Hey, thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes of the show every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. Some folks are scared and they're shutting down and canceling events, but others are coming out and saying it's important that we still get together and we find a space to grieve and heal together. Community resilience after multiple mass shootings in California. It's Tuesday, January 24th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. A little later, we'll be hearing how the core of the Earth may be spinning more slowly than it used to, which might mean our days are getting just a tiny bit shorter. And we'll review who's nominated for an Oscar this year. But first, just two days after that Lunar New Year shooting in Monterey Park, There's news of another shooting involving Asian Americans in California. Police say two connected shootings in Half Moon Bay claim the lives of at least seven people. And they've arrested a suspect, 66-year-old Chun-Li Zhao. The suspect in the Monterey Park shooting Saturday was a 72-year-old Asian man. And many of that shooting's victims were over 50 as well. That had us thinking particularly about how older people in the Asian American community are processing the news. And for that, we called up Connie Chung Jo. She's CEO of the group Asian Americans Advancing Justice Southern California. She tells Deepa Fernandez, the news has been hard to take in. Um, Well, it's definitely been a lot. We were already grieving over what's happened in Monterey Park at the Lunar New Year Festival there and in the mass shooting that's now taken the lives of 11 people. And then last night to find out that there's been a second shooting in Northern California, also involving um, Asian American victims and an Asian American shooter. Um, Our community is just really in shock. What's started out as fear about anti-Asian hate and then sort of speculating about what might have happened and why. And then now we're in the community, there's talk about We need to really think about gun control and um, what's happening in our own community. Mm. You know, we should let our listeners know that California is home to six million residents of Asian descent. Roughly one in six Californians is Asian. And that's most of any state, second only to Hawaii. And we come from a large diversity of countries that make up Asia. But one of the interesting things, Connie, that I'd love you to talk to is the socioeconomic differences in the community because they're stark and many older folks live with very little. So a place like a dance hall becomes a central community hub and a a place where you can get a little piece of joy. How hard is it for people to process that their place of fun and relaxation was so gruesomely attacked? Yeah, I mean, I I think you're right that, you know, you have to understand Monterey Park Uh, where the mass shooting happened at the Lunar New Year Festival, is a small suburban town in Los Angeles that is almost two-thirds Asian American, and that's predominantly Chinese American. And so for our community members, for seniors, for elders, what I understand by folks who used to frequent that dance hall is that this was just a place to hang out and have fun and be with your community. And, you know, if I can remind you that Monterey Park, 
is part of the San Gabriel Valley, which is a cluster of cities in that region. All of the cities there are majority Asian American. So this region, which is home of one of the largest Asian American communities in the country, just feels like a suburb that is close-knit and comfortable where you can get great food and you can go to your local boba shop and local restaurants, but it just has this very strong Asian American fix or culture to it. So it mm. does feel like a part of our home and a part of our, our really safe, tight-knit community has just been blown up. And older Asian adults have not had an easy life here, and I know it's impossible to generalize, but can you tell us about some of the struggles that the Asian community Folks over 55 might have lived through here in California. We know many came as refugees from across the region due to the Vietnam War. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's it's important to keep in mind that Asian Americans as a racial group have some of the highest disparity between the haves and the have-nots. When you look at economics, when you look at education, it, it, across the board of socioeconomic indicators. And um, Advancing Justice Southern California, we actually did a study uh, a few years back using 2010 census data and, uh, to look at seniors, 55 and older, to see how they are doing in Los Angeles and break it down by ethnic group. And what you found was that Asian Americans who are seniors do have um, some of the highest rates of being on public benefits. It's an extremely limited English-speaking community. It's predominantly folks speaking their native languages. And depending on the ethnic group, they have immigrated from places like Cambodia or Vietnam, where they might have experienced a lot of trauma during the civil wars there. Or they might have come here, and what we see is a lot of Asian seniors living really packed together or living in very modest means. When you go around Monterey Park, you meet a lot of Chinese immigrant seniors on the bus going to Ranch 99 Market, really just living a very simple and modest life. Yeah. I wonder if this is really bringing the community together. I know, you know, in the aftermath of many of the anti-Asian hate incidents that happened, the younger generation really stood up and it was almost like a shock because in Asian cultures, we we really love and respect our elders and they're a very important part of our community. I wonder how, you know, is this bringing across generations, the, the younger Asian Americans out to support their folks, their elders? You know, I think we're seeing some of that. I think it's it's still too early to tell. What I have noticed is some of the local organizers of festivals and events, some folks are scared and they're shutting down and canceling events, but others are coming out and saying, it's important that we still get together, that we still celebrate our holiday, and we find a space to grieve and heal together. And in this these spaces, we are seeing both older and younger younger generation come together. As to whether we have the galvanization of young Asian Americans, the way we were seeing at the height of anti-Asian hate with things like the Atlanta shooting in Oakland, I am not sure yet. I think we're, we're still mm. waiting to see. I think right now we're still in that initial response of a lot of our community members are in shock 
and uh, people are now trying to figure out what what can we do and how do we support. One of the confusing things, Connie, which I know is a lot over my social feeds, is the fact that two shooters now, within a couple of days of each other, are of Asian descent as well. How do we begin to process the fact that the violence was perpetrated inside the community as well? You know, we're still trying to process that. I'm still trying to process that myself. Mm. I know one thing is I, I keep in mind that after a mass shooting or killing like this, I was told and to brace myself that there could be copycat attacks. So, you know, this could be one of those copycat um, incidents. And, and it, I don't know that necessarily it means that we're seeing a whole pattern. Um, I do think that within the Asian American community as a whole, there are still a very low rates of gun ownership and gun usage. And the midterm elections, what we found was that gun control was still one of the top issues for Asian American registered voters. So I don't know exactly what to make of this, but I don't want people to read too much into it and start assuming that all Asian Americans are now taking up guns and our seniors are going around on a shooting spree because I I want us to be cautious about reading too much into these two incidents. Yeah. And do you feel like people will seek help in the aftermath of this? Maybe we'll tell a counselor, I'm struggling. Can you help me? We really hope so. And that was one of the most uh, immediate responses for for our API community in the aftermath of the Monterey Park shootings is we wanted to make sure not just the victims, but our Asian American community know how do you access support and get help, especially mental health and trauma and grief support in this time. Because whatever the motive of the shooter was, the impact was that our community woke up on Sunday morning feeling a deep sense of trauma and grief over this shooting on our Lunar New Year Festival. And our community as a large really needs to go out there and get the mental health services um, they need right now. Connie, can I ask you if this has hit home personally for you? Have you been personally impacted? Um, I have. We, as an organization, had a booth at the Lunar New Year Festival in Monterey Park. So I had staff who were out there on Saturday night who fortunately had left before the shootings happened. But I was supposed to be there on Sunday, manning the booth with my staff, and I had invited my kids and family members to join me there. Monterey Park is only about 10 minutes from my house. I am also a resident of the San Gabriel Valley. And we have some staff who know of folks who have been part of that shooting And um, San Gabriel Valley is definitely an important part of our Asian American community's home, including for a lot of those around me. So it does feel um, deeply personal. I too lived in the San Gabriel Valley for almost a decade, and it is an incredibly rich cultural area. Connie Chung Jo, CEO of Asian Americans Advancing Justice Southern California, It's a legal aid and civil rights organization. Connie, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. After the break, ever feel like you're moving a little slower than you used to? Well, so is the Earth's core. 
what our next guest calls the solid iron heart at the center of our planet, is spinning a little slower than it used to, according to a new study. Don't worry, it's not the end of the world, but it is interesting. Stick around. something that's hard to fathom, but worth considering every once in a while. About 3,000 miles under your feet, there's a superheated ball of iron wrapped in molten liquid spinning along with the rest of the planet. The spinning liquid outer core is the engine that drives the EM field. And that's where we have our problem. This engine has stalled. The core of the Earth has stopped spinning. Okay, no it hasn't. That was from the 2003 sci-fi film, The Core. And there's nothing even nearly apocalyptic happening that might require a rescue mission from the likes of Aaron Eckhart and Stanley Tucci. But a study published yesterday in the journal Nature Geoscience says the Earth's core has slowed down its rotation and might even have started spinning in the opposite direction. Elizabeth Day is a senior teaching fellow in geophysics at Imperial College London, and she tells Robin Young there's no need to worry. It's not a problem that the Earth's core rotation might be changing. Um, So Earth's outer core is responsible for generating our magnetic field. And so we're always interested in how, how that fluid is flowing. And one of the things that might affect that is how the inner core, which is the solid ball within the liquid shell, might be rotating or changing. But it's not like the disaster film, The Core, basically. We do not need to send an emergency mission or take any action. But it's important if you're interested in understanding where the magnetic field comes from, for example. Well, for example, and that, and by the way, the idea of you know, a horror film called The Core, we have so many that we can line up right now because of climate change that I'm kind of relieved you know, that this may not be one of them. But we do understand that there is a lot of heated scientific debate Some experts think the Earth's core is linked to the length of the day. So how hot is that debate, and what does the core's slowing or going faster have to do with the length of our days? So how the Earth rotates is affected by the different layers that make it up, So and how mass is distributed and moving within those. And so where there are changes in the deep interior of our planet, we might be able to predict or measure minuscule changes in the length length of Earth's day. But again, these are really, really small changes that we're only able to detect because we have really sensitive instruments. And until recently, they've been a bit of a puzzle as to exactly what all of the causes of these variations might be. But this new study thinks that perhaps these changes in the rotation rate of the inner core could be causing some of the variation. Yeah. Does it have anything to do with climate change? It's not immediately clear from this. So certainly the authors of the paper have linked this with some variations in climate that we haven't necessarily understood as geoscientists. But this is just one paper that has made this link. So we'll have to do more measurements and take more data to be able to understand if this does have any impact. But this would really only be on small changes in Earth's climate, not the big anthropogenic signals that we're seeing today. Well, and we're relieved to hear that this is not a disaster film in the making. But what is the most important thing that you want to find out about the core? I think if you asked 10 different scientists, they'd all give you 10 different answers. But for me personally, the things I am most interested in are the core is this kind of window into into our planet. So it tells us 
about some of the processes that have been really essential for the evolution of life. So, for example, the fact we have a magnetic field protects us from solar radiation and solar wind and is one of the reasons that life has been able to evolve on our, our planet. And so we want to understand this kind of window into our past of how did Earth evolve, how did it form, how did it become the way it is today. And we want to do that by basically very limited data. We can kind of take a snapshot of what the Earth looks like at the moment, but we have to use that snapshot to unpick four and a half billion years of history. And we can then take that sort of understanding and apply it to other planets in our solar system to really get at kind of the mysteries of how planets form and why they all look so different. Hmm. It's wonderful because we are well aware that we keep looking out into outer space, into you know black holes to try to find out about our past, but you are looking within at the core. Uh, Elizabeth Day, Senior Teaching Fellow in Geophysics at Imperial College London. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, Oscar nominations came out today. Depop breaks down the nominees after the break. nominations were announced this morning in Los Angeles and Everything Everywhere All at Once, that quirky film about the multiverse, led the field with 11 nods, including Best Picture. Other Best Picture nominees, All Quiet on the Western Front and The Banshees of Inner Sharon, followed with nine nominations. And the rest of the Best Picture nominees, taking a deep breath here, Avatar, The Way of Water, The Fablemans, Elvis, Top Gun Maverick, Tar, Triangle of Sadness, and Women Talking. Joining us now is John Horn, KPCC entertainment reporter and host of Retake. Hey, John, welcome back. Great to be on with you. So, John, your first thoughts on seeing the list of nominees? I think what's interesting, if you look at the nominations really closely, you might recall when Parasite won four Oscars uh, not that long ago, not a single member of its cast was nominated for an Oscar, as if the movie had acted itself. And you look at everything everywhere all at once, it received four acting nominations, including Best Actress pick for Michelle Yeoh. She becomes the first Asian-American actress nominated in that category. So I think the Academy is, even in you know three years, has started to understand that you can recognize a movie that is mostly foreign language, uh, everything everywhere all at once, there's a lot of Chinese in it, and also its actors. And I think that's a remarkable achievement. I also have to single out the Best Picture nomination for Women Talking. It's my favorite film of the year. Not a lot of people saw it, and I hope some Academy Award attention will bring audiences uh, its way. So, John, I just want to pause us here for a moment on everything, everywhere, all at once, because I think this is a moment today we're waking up yet again to another mass shooting that's really strongly impacting the Asian American community. It's a really hard moment for the Asian American community. And this seems like a moment of celebration. This is a good thing. So just talk to us a little bit more about the film and the fact that all its leads are Asian characters as an Asian director. You know, this could have been a story told with non-Asian actors, with white actors, but it wasn't. 
Well, I think what's also really important about the film is it doesn't deal with the traditional cliches that you typically see uh, a Hollywood movie, and this is really not a Hollywood movie in any way except the way it was released. It doesn't traffic in the cliches of the Asian American story. They're not scenes where a grandma is cooking dumplings. There's not the intergenerational immigrant argument. It's a story that, as you said, could be cast with any number of uh, actors. It just happens to be cast uh, with Asian American actors. And I think part of what it represents is when you start making movies that not only don't deal with cliches, but also are universal in their story, I think that's a real turn of events. Because I think traditionally we would see a film like this either played by white actors or would have a lot of the traditional cliches of the Asian American story, and it has neither. I want to just play a clip from everything, everywhere, all at once, because, it, well, it centers around Evelyn, who is a laundromat owner, played by Michelle Yeoh, who's being audited by the IRS, and I have to say those IRS scenes blew my mind. Now, she's struggling to come to terms with the fact that her daughter, played by Stephanie Hsu, is gay, Let's listen to a scene where she has trouble with the pronouns for her daughter's girlfriend, Becky. He doesn't have to stay. Who's he? Becky. Becky's a she. You know me. I always make up he, she. In Chinese, just one word. Ta. So easy. And the way you two are dressed, I'm sure I'm not the only one calling him he. I mean her, him. I. It turns out that Yo's character, Evelyn, has to also save the world or several worlds. We did say this was a film about the multiverse. So, John, 11 nominations. Do you think it has the potential to do well at the Oscars? I think Everything Everywhere All at Once has a very good shot at winning Best Picture. And what a great scene that is. And Jamie Lee Curtis, who's also exceptional in the film, is nominated. Um, Listen, I think it's a wide open race. I think what's also really interesting is that popular films, box office blockbusters are almost never included in the best picture race. The Academy expanded the category to 10 films every year. It used to be a range between five and 10. And we have not only Top Gun Maverick, but Avatar The Way of Water competing for best picture. That never happens, that you have billion dollar Mm. grossing films in the best picture race. So maybe that will reverse the course of the audience. But it's also an incredibly diverse list of nominations when you start looking deeper into other categories. Unfortunately, all of the directors are men. This follows, you know, the win by Jane Campion for The Power of the Dog and previous to that, Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. All the filmmakers are men, but a lot of the films are about women and are made by women. So I think it's progress, even if it's uh, incremental. So I want to go to a couple other categories. Let's look at Kate Blanchett. She's nominated again for playing an imperious conductor in the film Tar. Here's a scene where she describes her job. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. You know, my left hand, it shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means that time stops. Kate Blanchett's already won two Oscars. Do you think she's a frontrunner to win the third? I think she is. And I think what's interesting about this film is that she plays somebody who is not really likable. And I think what's important is that you can make a movie that doesn't have a likable person at the center, 
but you really care about the outcome of that character. And it's also nominated for cinematography. There's an amazing scene in a Juilliard classroom that is a single take. The cinematographer, Florian Hofmeister, shot that unbelievably well. Uh, If you watch the movie, just pay attention to see if you can spot a cut in the Juilliard scene because there isn't one. Um, And yeah, I think it's also representative of, you know, female-led films. There are a lot of movies that could have been nominated that weren't, but when you have movies like Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, and Tar competing for Best Picture, those are films that have strong women at the center, and those strong women are both nominated for Best Actress. Let's talk about Best Actor category. Colin Farrell picked up a nomination for his performance in The Banshees of Inner Sharon, playing a man struggling to understand why his lifelong best friend has decided to end their relationship. Let's listen. Just tell me what I've done to you. And if I've said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it, but I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was. And I'll say sorry for that too, Colin. With all my heart, I'll say sorry. Just stop running away from me like some fool of a moody school child. John, your thoughts as to Colin Farrell's chances? <laughs> Um, I mean, this is a very interesting movie by Martin McDonough. Colin Farrell was nominated for Best Actor. This is a breakup story, uh, not between you know a man and a woman or romantic partners, but between two friends whose friendship has basically run its course. It is gothic in its end. Um, it has a very strange conclusion, but amazing performances. And Colin Farrell is playing a character who isn't quite the sharpest tool in the shed, but he's got a big heart. He doesn't quite understand what's happening to him. Uh, It's a very moving performance. Um, I love that film. It is certainly unusual in how it plays out. So if you have an aversion to... um, Let's just say knives and 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 people Ooh. losing uh, losing fingers. I'll just leave it at that. It may not be for you, but it's still a very interesting film. All right. So just finally, we only have a few seconds left. Any notable surprises or snubs? Well, I have to say the biggest surprise for me was that Women Talking was nominated for Best Picture. This is not only my favorite film of the year, but I also think it's a really important film, not only for what it says, but what the story itself is about. It's about a group of women who've been sexually assaulted and they're trying to find agency. They need to leave the place that they're living or stay and fight. It has no chance, I think, of winning Best Picture, uh, but I do think women talking, getting recognized is a very good thing. We've been talking Oscar nominations with John Horn, KPCC entertainment reporter and host of Retake. John, as always, thank you. You are very welcome. We'll see you at the Oscars uh, March 12th. And you can get a full list of all the nominees at our website, hereandnow.org. And while you're at hereandnow.org, why not check out some of the other stories you might have missed? From the latest out of the war in Ukraine to Massachusetts' new first-of-its-kind curriculum teaching the risks of driving well high, mandatory for new drivers under 18. And make sure you subscribe to this podcast, which comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Ashley Locke, Sam Rafelson, and Emiko Tamagawa. Our editors are Gabe Bullard, Todd Munt, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. 
and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.